Last week we began a short series on the conscience. We talked about what the conscience is, knowing yourself in light of God's knowledge of yourself, a knowledge of self that aligns with God's knowledge of you. We said that conscience is like a courtroom in that it's a witness testifying to what has happened. It's a court reporter keeping a record. It's a judge issuing a verdict. We also said that it's like a mirror. It shows you the reality of who you are. And probably the most helpful image that we saw conscience is like a deputy. It's God's deputy in the soul. It it, it represents God to us. Just like the deputy acts in place of the sheriff, the conscience speaks for God. Letting us know if our thoughts and actions are right or wrong. We also saw that everyone has a conscience, regardless of whether they're a Christian or not. Our conscience may make errors. It's not infallible. And that's why it's important that we work to align our conscience with God's word. And ultimately, our conscience should point us to Jesus. This morning, we're going to consider the conscience in the Christian life. So last, year, or last week we looked at the conscience in mankind. This week we're looking at the conscience in the Christian life. And next week we're going to look at the conscience in the public square. So this week, this should help us kind of take what we learned about conscience in general and help us to apply it very practically in our lives. Richard Sibbs wrote that the conscience is our friend. It speaks to God for us at all times. This is a friend that we want to learn to have a good relationship with, and it will be helpful to us. Sibbs also said, we can do nothing well without joy and a good conscience, which is the ground of joy. So today, as we think about conscience in the Christian life, we're going to look at three things. First of all, training your conscience. Secondly, conversing with your conscience or having a conversation with your conscience. And then finally, keeping a good conscience. So training your conscience, conversing with your conscience, and keeping a good conscience. So let's begin with training your conscience. We said that our conscience can be in error. It doesn't always get things right. It's like a tool that sometimes, you know, it gives wrong measurements. If you have a tool that's doing that, that tool needs to be recalibrated. It needs to be fixed so that it's giving an accurate measurement. And our conscience is like that. You may remember from last week what Samuel Ansley said. The violation of conscience is always evil. In other words, you should never go against your conscience. And the following of an erring conscience is evil. So you shouldn't follow your conscience when it's in error. But that leaves you with a dilemma. So, he said, but there is a middle way that is safe and good. Namely, the informing of conscience better by God's word and following of it accordingly. So, like Ansley said, the conscience has to be informed by God's word. That's the only standard for our conscience. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God enables the conscience to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Joel Beakey and Mark Jones explain that we are to compare the book of our conscience 
with the book of Scripture. And when we check our conscience against the Word of God, we need to remember that the Word of God is the higher authority. So if our conscience and the Word of God disagree, then that tells us our conscience is in error at that point, and it needs to be informed or corrected by the Word of God. It's important that we learn God's Word, then, so that our conscience is informed. In a 2020 NFL game between the Titans and the Texans, Titans head coach Mike Vrabel needed to stop the clock as the Texans had the ball, but he didn't want to spend a timeout. So he sent an extra defensive player onto the field knowing that it would be a penalty. So the key is that the rule book specifically states that the officials have to blow the whistle and stop the clock within three seconds if that defensive player stays on the field. That stops the clock. That was more important to Vrabel than the five-yard penalty that it would cost him. Now, when the Titans got the ball back, they still had all three timeouts. It enabled them to tie the game and then to eventually win in overtime. And the Titans analyst commenting on the game, who was a former coach himself, said this. He said, after my second year in the league, I was told I needed to learn the rule book inside and out. When I was a head coach, the rule book was something you needed to know for the rules and how it can apply in any situation. Well, for Christians, we need to know our book, the Bible, inside and out, and how to apply it in any situation. Our conscience needs to be informed by Scripture so that we can make wise decisions. So when you find yourself faced with a choice, you want to already know what God's word says. So the time to study God's word is now. James Durham, and by the way, you're going to hear a good bit from James Durham this morning. He's a Scottish Puritan. And um, as I've studied conscience over the last year or two, he was one who kind of dug in pretty deep. He did a 22-message series for his people on the conscience. And he's been real helpful to me in my understanding of conscience. So you'll hear a bit from him this morning. But he taught his people that we are to do something before we put conscience to give its answer. So he's telling them, you need to study God's word regularly so that the believer, he, he, here's what he said the believer should do. The believer should let the arguments of God's word sink down to the conscience and study to know what conscience thinks of them. So this is not just a casual reading of God's word. This is studying it regularly, meditating on it, knowing God's word so that we're ready when the time comes to apply it. When your conscience is informed by God's word and it's in harmony with God's word, Durham writes that the word and the conclusion of conscience are connected and joined together so as the one is the ground of the other and flows from the other, and this is the most special way how conscience makes its sense of things known. The word of God being the rule of conscience or the standard of conscience. And that's why conscience, God's deputy, is an authority to be listened to. The weightiness of conscience, he said, flows from its joining with and backing the word. So, we are to train our consciences 
by immersing ourselves in the word of God. So training our consciences. And then secondly, conversing with your conscience. How to have a conversation with your conscience. So we're talking about conscience now as a dialogue partner, conversation partner. Psalm 4.4 says, meditate in your heart upon your bed, or the older translations say, commune with your heart upon your bed. And 2 Corinthians 13 tells us, examine yourselves. In other words, we are supposed to take time for reflection and self-examination. It's important to realize that while our conscience is part of us, the Bible also speaks of it as in some ways distinct from us too. Listen to how Romans 9.1 speaks of it. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So conscience is not me and conscience is not the Holy Spirit. Conscience is a separate thing that God has given to us. It's part of us, but it's not us. And we can have this Dialogue, this conversation with the conscience. The conscience speaks and it asks questions and it answers. We can deliberately communicate with our conscience. Not, not audibly, it's, you're not going to hear it speaking to you. It's not a person, but scripture speaks of the conscience as if it has the ability to use language and communicate. If conscience is our friend and it's God's representative and it communicates, then we should keep a good relationship with our conscience. We should speak regularly. Thomas Manton said, take a time to parley with yourselves and consider how matters stand between you and God. Often your conscience will ask you questions if you're listening. Why did you do that? What were you trying to accomplish with that comment? And we need to be ready to listen and give an answer to the questions that our conscience asks us. And on the flip side, we will sometimes ask conscience questions. What were my motives when I did that? Would it be right or wrong for me to do this? And sometimes conscience will answer by binding you with a sense of duty that you should do a particular thing. Sometimes conscience will produce a restlessness, a discontent, an unease as it challenges you that you've done something wrong. It may bring to mind the judgments of scripture and say you're standing in danger of these things because of what you've done. Or it may produce a peace and calmness as it approves of what you've done in accord with conscience. Now, <clears throat> what if you're sitting here this morning thinking, I'm not sure that I hear from my conscience very often. If I asked a question of my conscience, I don't know if I'd get an answer. What can you do? Well, first, be well informed of the truth, especially from God's word, because that's the vocabulary that conscience is going to use. And as you take in God's word, meditate on it. You heard what James Durham said, the believer is supposed to let the arguments of scripture sink down to the conscience. 
and study to know what conscience thinks of them. So do your best then to bring things impartially to your conscience. You that are parents know what it's like when your kids, like if you've got two kids that are telling you the same story, but they're each giving you a different version of it. And they're each telling you a version that makes them sound like they're in the right or makes them sound like they're the victim. Don't do that with your conscience. Don't front load the question. Be honest with your conscience. Be impartial as you bring things to conscience and be ready to listen to what conscience has to say. And when you believe you have an answer from your conscience, evaluate it against the word of God. You can recognize the voice of conscience if its answer is from the word of God and its answer is no more broad or narrow than what the word of God says. Having a conversation with your conscience is like weeding a garden. The goal is to clear out everything that shouldn't be there. And it's much easier to accomplish that when you do it regularly. If you weed your garden once a month, there's a lot more work to do than if you weed it daily. And the same is true with conscience. It should be a regular conversation that we're having. Keep short accounts. So what should you talk about with your conscience? Conscience is a good conversation partner, and I'm going to break it down this way, about the past, the present, and the future. <clears throat> conscience can help us with actions long past. We mentioned last week how Joseph's brothers, 20 years after selling Joseph, say, they say in Genesis 42, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother. Conscience was speaking to them about something from 20 years in the past. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance after he was confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. And in that prayer, he says, You delight in truth in the inward being. That's the goal of a good conscience. After, an, after David repents, his relationship with God was restored. He confessed his sin. He received forgiveness. The Corinthians had confessed sin and learned from it. So when their actions were called into question, Paul was able to write in 2 Corinthians 7, for godly grief, which is what they had exhibited, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas Worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. This is what conscience can do regarding the past. And it can lead us to godly grief and repentance and restoration, and it can clear us. Conscience can also help you understand what your duty is in the present. Durham writes that conscience discovers duty and holds it before us. There's an obligation to duty laid on by conscience, and conscience invites to duty by promising peace upon the performance of it. Conscience acts like a spiritual nervous system for us. Just like you might feel pain 
warning you that something's wrong. Conscience warns you about what you're about to do or about what you've just done. It can also reward you with a sense of satisfaction at having done your duty rightly as well. Now, the most significant question that you can ask yourself in the present is, am I truly God's child? Am I truly redeemed? Am I a Christian? And William Perkins, who wrote much about conscience, called this the greatest case of conscience. In other words, it's the greatest situation in your life that conscience can be applied to. The question of whether you truly belong to God. And so he outlined the steps of conversion. He says there's humiliation, meaning recognizing your sinfulness. There's faith in Christ. There's repentance. And there's obedience. Now, because people struggle to have assurance that they truly belong to Christ, Perkins wrote of what was called the golden chain. And I want you to read his question and answer with me. Hear this, because I think it's helpful. He asks the question, how a man may be in conscience assured of his own election, assured that he's truly one of God's. And he says this, election vocation or calling, faith, adoption, justification, sanctification, and eternal glorification. Okay, those, those things make up the golden chain that he's talking about. Okay, election, vocation or calling, faith, adoption, justification, sanctification, glorification are never separated in the salvation of any man but like inseparable companions go hand in hand. So as he that can be assured of one of them may infallibly conclude in his own heart that he has and shall have interest in all the other in his due time. What's he saying? He's saying that if your conscience gives you assurance of any one of those links in the chain, you can grab onto that and know with confidence that all the rest of them belong to you as well. Because they all go together. And in time, he says, you'll come to see that. So conscience can help us with past, with the present, and it can also help us with future choices. The author of Hebrews indicates that he desires his future actions to be done with a good conscience. Hebrews 13, 8. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So as you consider whether some choice is aligned with your conscience, Durham suggests some questions that you can ask your conscience. Is this thing approved by God? Is it the right thing for you in your particular calling and time? Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Not everything that's lawful is helpful, and not everything that's lawful builds up. <clears throat> so there are things that are approved by God that are maybe not right for you in a particular moment in time when they would be right for someone else. So is it the right thing for you in your particular calling and time? <clears throat> would you acknowledge God in it? <clears throat> Proverbs 3, in all your ways acknowledge him. He'll make straight your paths. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
What motive is guiding you in this? In whose strength will this be done? What's your goal? What are you aiming at? <clears throat> Second Corinthians 4, Paul writes, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, <clears throat> with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. What are you aiming at? And is this done sincerely with singleness of mind? And we need to remember that God is the Lord of the conscience, not anyone else. Joel Beakey and Mark Jones remind us that one person may try to tyrannize another's conscience, but only God may absolutely control our conscience. Again, and that's why it's so important for us to be saturated with God's word. Well, we've talked about training your conscience, and we've talked about how to have a conversation with your conscience. Let's talk about how to keep a good conscience. Okay? And here, we'll look at what, how, and why. Okay? What is it to keep a good conscience? What does that mean? Well, very simply, here's what it means. To keep a good conscience means that you don't commit any known sin, you don't omit any known duty, and you do things with right motives. Sounds easy, right? So if you know it would be a sin to do something, you don't do it. If you know that you should do something, you make sure to do it. You don't avoid it. And if you're in doubt, you don't do it. Instead, you seek to do what you do in order to please God. Acts 24, 16, Paul says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. The older translations say, I exercise myself. To strive is what that word means. To labor, to work hard. So James Durham, in a sermon on this verse, gives as his main point, it is a most difficult exercising and uptaking thing to keep a good conscience. In other words, it's hard work. If you were an Olympic sprinter, you wouldn't expect to hear the starter's pistol and begin leisurely jogging around the track and win the gold medal. No, performing at a peak level is hard work. You have to strive, to labor, to exercise yourself. And Durham encourages his hearers, they're going to need to work hard to keep a good conscience. Do you think this is something that would happen easily? So Durham tells his people, he says, or shall the having and keeping of a good conscience be an exercise to Paul, and do you think to come so easily and without all labor to it? <clears throat> In other words, if Paul says it's hard work for him, why would we think it would be easy for us? So it's an exercise, it's hard work, and it's something that we need to do regularly. Thomas Manton writes, there's a continual parley between a godly man and his conscience. It is either suggesting a duty or humbling for defects. It is their daily exercise to judge themselves. <clears throat> so that's what it is to keep a good conscience. Now, how? How do you keep a good conscience? As you train your conscience, as you have a conversation with your conscience, how do you keep a good conscience? Let me give you three things for starters. First, you need to deliberate with your conscience. Durham again writes, it is a main piece of a tender walk in a Christian to deliberate with conscience before he do anything. So we want to seek to have clarity 
on matters of conscience. Paul tells the Romans in chapter 14, he says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, this is a matter of conscience, and Paul says you should be fully convinced. That means you should seek to have clarity on these issues of conscience. So, please note, ignorance and a good conscience don't go together. We need to know God's word so that our conscience is well-informed. And second, we should listen carefully and do it with humility and be willing to be swayed by what it says. That's that idea of coming with an open mind to hear what conscience has to say. And third, we must always speak with conscience with an eye to the promises of God. What do we mean by that? When conscience convicts you of sin, you should run to Christ for pardon. Listen to how William Fenner explained it for his people. He says, we must use the exercise of faith in applying the blood of Christ. We must labor to purge and cleanse our consciences with it. If we find that we have sinned, we must run immediately to the blood of Christ to wash away our sin. We must not let the wound fester or become infected, but get it healed. As we sin daily, so he justifies daily, and we must daily go to him for it. And I want to emphasize this point about turning to Christ when we listen to conscience, because we don't want this to become an example of legalism. We want this to be the kind of thing that is turning us to Christ. Conscience should lead us to Christ. So one more example. Listen to how James Durham encouraged his hearers on this point. He says, be frequent and serious in making humble and believing applications to the blood of Christ, that thereby your consciences may be sprinkled and purged from dead works. Why? For the great ground of your peace is not your seriousness or sincerity, but his satisfaction. We live in a day and age when people think that the most important thing is just to be sincere. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It's a sincerely held belief. Truth is subjective, but as long as I'm true to myself. No, Durham says, when conscience convicts you of sin, turn to Christ. It's not your seriousness and your sincerity that will ultimately give you peace. It is the satisfaction that Christ has performed on the cross, shedding his blood, satisfying God's wrath, taking your sin penalty on himself, and giving you his righteousness, that is what will give you peace of conscience. So to keep a good conscience, deliberate with your conscience, listen and take heed to what conscience says, and have an eye to the promises of God in Christ. So we've seen what it is to keep a good conscience and how to keep a good conscience. Let me now talk about why 
you should keep a good conscience. Why do the hard work of keeping a good conscience? And I'll explain this just under three headings, duty and benefit and comfort. First, keeping a good conscience is your duty. In fact, God tells us this is the duty of all mankind, something for which every single person will be held accountable. Romans 2.15 says that even Gentiles who do not know God's law show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So this principle here is what lay underneath the Nuremberg trials. The, the, the war crime trials after World War II. The fourth Nuremberg principle reads, the fact that a person acted pursuant to the order of his government or of a superior does not relieve him from responsibility under international law provided a moral choice was in fact possible to him. We all have the duty to do what is right. When those in authority tell you to do something that is not right, you not only have the right to disobey, you have the duty to disobey. You have the duty to do what is right. In other words, saying, I didn't know, or I was just doing what I was told, is not a valid excuse. It is the duty of all mankind, Romans says, to keep a good conscience. Second, there are great benefits to keeping a good conscience. 1 John 3 tells us that whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So a good conscience gives us boldness in coming to God. It gives us reason to expect that God will hear our prayers. A good conscience is the foundation of joy in our lives because having peace with God brings joy. And finally, keeping a good conscience brings comfort. When your conscience is clear, there's a peace and a calmness that results. When Paul explains to the Corinthians about the difficulties that they've experienced and how God has given them comfort, he speaks of the testimony of our conscience. This is part of the comfort that God gave them. Keeping a good conscience also brings you comfort when life comes to a close. King Hezekiah, when he thought he was about to die, Prayed now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. A good conscience allows you to approach death with confidence. So this morning, as we've considered the conscience in the Christian life, we've seen the need for training the conscience according to God's word. We've seen what it looks like to have a conversation with conscience. We've seen that we need to keep a good conscience and how to do that, Thomas Manton summarized some of his teaching on conscience this way. He says, in short, we should be careful we sin not against conscience, for it is our best friend or our worst enemy. It is God's deputy, and to resist the officer is to resist the prince or magistrate, in other words, the one that it represents. 
Therefore, do nothing without conscience. Do nothing against conscience, but do all things with conscience, rightly informed by the Word of God. Now, last week we finished by looking at the conscience and the gospel. And I want to do that again this week. 1 Peter 3, 21 speaks of an appeal to God for a good conscience. Or as the older translations say, the answer of a good conscience. That word answer can be translated as demand. So Richard Sibbs says that this is the conscience examining the self and applying the blood of Christ and God's promise of forgiveness. And then based on Christ's blood, then the conscience makes its appeal or its demand or calls for God to act according to his promises. The conscience is calling out to God to be true to his word, which means that the believer's sin is forgiven and his conscience is clear. The answer of a good conscience. Examining your conscience shouldn't be done apart from Christ. He's the object of your faith. It shouldn't be done apart from the Word of God. That's the standard of conscience. And it shouldn't be done apart from the Spirit who illuminates the truth. Joel Beakey and Mark Jones remind us it's important to note that it is by the Holy Spirit that the conscience lays hold of the gospel by faith in Christ's blood, finds peace with God, and has a growing assurance of salvation. So peace of conscience comes from the gospel. And we want to be growing in that assurance, that greatest case of conscience. R.L. Dabney was a Presbyterian minister, and he was actually the chaplain to Stonewall Jackson in the Civil War. He wrote this. He said, a faithful self-inspection usually reveals so much that is defective that its first result is rather the discouragement than the encouragement of hope. But this leads the humbled Christian to look away from himself and to the Redeemer. And thus assurance, which is the reflex act of faith. And <clears throat> let me just explain <clears throat> me. what he means by that, the reflex act. He means when you exercise faith in Christ, what you get back is assurance that Christ has redeemed you. So, so you exercise faith, and the reflex act is assurance that comes to you. So he says, this leads the humbled Christian to look away from himself and to the Redeemer, and thus assurance, which is the reflex act of faith, is strengthened by strengthening the direct actings of faith. When you act in faith, when you, when you turn to Christ because you've been convicted of your sin, and you receive assurance from him. That assurance strengthens your faith that you exercise in him. That's what Dabney is getting at. So as conscience does its work, and it directs you to Christ, in the end, your assurance and your faith are strengthened because you received the grace that's promised in the gospel. So peace of conscience does not come from being perfect. Peace of conscience comes from a sincere and humble faith in dependence on Christ. 
in part two of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. Honest is informed that he is soon to cross the river of death. And Bunyan presents him as approaching death with a good conscience and the confidence that comes from it. Good conscience in Bunyan's story is a man that Mr. Honest has encountered and good conscience has agreed to accompany him as he crosses the river of death. And so here's what Bunyan writes. He said, Then Mr. Honest called for his friends and said unto them, I die, but shall make no will. As for my honesty, it shall go with me. Let him that comes after be told of this. When the day that he was to be gone was come, he addressed himself to go over the river. Now the river at that time overflowed the banks in some places. But Mr. Honest, in his lifetime, had spoken to one good conscience to meet him there, the which he also did, and lent him his hand, and so helped him over. The last words of Mr. Honest were, Grace reigns. So he left the world. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we consider those words, grace reigns, that is what conscience should ultimately lead us to say. When our conscience is doing what you've designed it to do, when, when we've trained our conscience according to God's word, and when we are in the habit of having conversations with our conscience, and, and, and when we're maintaining, keeping a good conscience, and, and this conscience does convict us of sin, we should be turning in faith to Christ. I pray that you would help us to do that, that we would listen to our conscience and that our conscience would lead us to Christ. And that in doing that, in exercising faith, we would receive the assurance that comes from your promises given to us in Christ. And that we would be able to say with Mr. Honest, as we maintain a good conscience, grace reigns. Because conscience is pointing us to you. It's not, it's not that we're getting something we deserve because we don't deserve it. It's grace. The promises that are given to us in Christ are grace. They come because of his merit, not ours. I pray that you would teach us and train us how to live with our conscience in a way that ultimately honors and pleases you. That we would walk well with our conscience, that we would respond, that we would develop our conscience, that, that our conscience would consistently turn us to you. And as we continue this morning, as we worship you, as we sing about the truth of I pray that we would be able to do conscience that is honoring to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.